0: Turn to Psalm 22, to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Do you know how it is when um, you prepare to watch a sunrise? How many of you have ever done this, after all? Yes, you may, um, you may sit on the top of a mountain, or the beach works too quite well because there's no obstruction. And in clear weather, you sit there in the dark and you may be a little cold because it's very early in the morning. But you know it is never, never your eyes that see the first ray of the sun. It's always your ears. The ears catch the first notion when you hear the birds sing. Somehow birds know that dawn is just about to come. And... um And this is what Psalm 22 speaks of, this experience of sitting in the dark place, hoping, waiting for the warmth and the light of the sun to rise upon you. To the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bulls of patience surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid." Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat, And be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember. And turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming just generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Nothing in Christian worship is more basic then the idea that God is present. Every Sunday we speak of God's presence in Jesus Christ. The covenantal formula, "God with us," Emmanuel, the very name that Isaiah seven fourteen assigned to the Messiah, to Jesus, born of a virgin. Exodus thirty three verse fourteen promises to Israel. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And we use the common greeting. God be with you. God be with you. God be with you. And hardly ever think about it. No man or woman can live without God's presence. If there is anything good in this world, it is on account of God being present. Evil is the absence of God. But can you imagine inhabiting a space and a time where all there is, is evil? Evil in every possible sense of the word. And God is absolutely, positively absent. Well, here in verses 1 and 2 is the overture of Psalm 22, stating the theme the theme of the absence of God. What if God is absent? What if he doesn't come? What if he doesn't show up? What if he has turned his face against me? What if? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry by day and night. But you do not answer. So there are two things that you see here in these two verses that state the theme of the absence of God. There is first the distance or the absence proper. And then there is this element of time, day and night. There is space and time filled with a void of God's absence. It's an oxymoron, I understand. It's, it's, it's a walking contradiction, that a space is void and filled with the absence of God. Because in a world that God has made, God is supposed to be present. It's unthinkable. That is how much the absence of God should shake you and cause you to be afraid. Now, the people knew David as a man of God. They knew that David proclaimed God. And they knew that David served God. How do you tell your people that the God whom you love and that you professed has forsaken you? How do you do this? But this David does. And right then and there, as he does this, he finds God. That is to say, he begins the process through which he finds God present again. For the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 21, speaks of God's absence. First in God's absence proper, where God says, or David says, Where are you? Why are you not here? Why have you forsaken me? And then he expands on this theme Because where God is absent, there are other forces that rush in. There is the presence of evil. That is also part of this concept of the absence of God. So this is verses 1 through 21, the first half of the psalm. But the second half of the psalm is a reversal, and it is a mirror reversal. Speaking of God's presence fly over the psalm, fly with me, and you'll see the reversal that is a mirror reversal. It takes four steps. One, David in God's absence or David living in the absence of God. Two, David in the presence of bestial enemies. Three, David in the presence of like-minded brothers and sisters. So this is the first step of reversal, a mirror of the presence of bestial enemies. Now it's the presence of brothers and sisters who worship God. And finally, the last step in this mirror reversal is David in the presence of God, in his temple. And not only David, but nations are flocking to God's presence and And so Psalm 22 moves from the absence to the presence of God, from a single man inhabiting a space and time void of God to a multitude filling God's temple, coming to God from distant places, distant spaces, and from distant times, future times, people who aren't even born, they are seen coming and somehow the one man's experience is responsible for all of it the one man's experience of god's absence has brought all this about now no christian can read this without kneeling at the cross of christ you can't read this without seeing that this is not an illness This is not a common evil that David describes. This is not an accident. This is an execution. And because the scope of this psalm is so far beyond any incident that you can cite from David's life, think only of this worldwide uh, worldwide ingathering of, of the Gentiles before the throne of God, you must, you have no other choice, but you must recall Peter's words from Acts chapter 2, who said, "Ah, being a prophet, a prophet, no less than a prophet. That's what David was. Among other things, he was a prophet. He saw things that other people had no access to. He saw this. And it is based on his own experience, no question about it, but there is far more to it. There's a fuller meaning, a fuller sense, and even David himself could see this. But he did know that what he experienced was somehow of a piece of someone that he trusted in. Someone who was coming. Someone who would save him. David, being a prophet, foresaw and spoke of the Christ. That's what Acts 2 says. Yeah, Look at verse 16. When did David ever have his hands and feet pierced? Look at verse 18. Whoever divided his garments by casting lots. These details, they lead you straight to the crucifixion of the righteous one, as does the theme of the psalm in the initial words. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Words that Jesus owned while hanging on the cross. So, I draw three Christ centered lessons from Psalm 22, verse 1. (laughs) Psalm 22, and not just from the first verse. The first lesson is the absence of God, Uh, something that we need to take account of. Number two, the turning point. And number three, the theologic. The theologic. David is living in the relative absence of God. He's living in a space and time, at least that's how he feels, void of God. So I ask you, what is this like? Now, there are those of you here tonight who know exactly what David is speaking of when he says, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why are you so far? Why are you so distant? Why do you not hear when I cry? There are those of you who know exactly what David is talking about. And there are those of you here tonight who should know what he is talking about, but you never let it rise to the surface. David lives in a space and time that is void of God. What is it like? First, in the absence of God, we're reduced to bestial behavior. And you'll see this in the enemies of the psalmist because they are part and parcel of the experience of God's absence, namely the presence of people acting out their most depraved fantasies, being, dare I say it, as bad as they can be, They've slipped into the vacuum that is left behind in a time when God seems absent. It's like Solomon said in Proverbs 29, verse 16. When the wicked increase, transgression increases. In the absence of God, sinners assume bestial, even demonic traits. Oxen. Lions, dogs, dogs, lions, oxen. These are the metaphors in the order in which they appear in the psalm, in acrostic order, sketching David's foes in verses 12 through 21. Hideous, bestial features, hideous, bestial properties. And such properties are also assigned to Satan and to demonic spirits in the Bible. Satan, of course, as Peter says, Is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is cast as a red dragon hovering over a woman who gives birth to a man-child having only one intent and that is to devour the child as soon as it is born. You can hardly watch if you think in straight lines as we learned this morning. But there... This little man-child is caught up to the throne of God and rules the nations with a rod of iron. And the satanic beasts of Revelation 13, they have horns like oxen, plenty of horns representing the power of darkness. When God is silent, when God is absent, don't expect any mercy from human beings no more than from raging beasts or even of devils. Isn't this what you see beneath the cross of Jesus? A snapshot of us at our worst. Mocking, laughing, gloating, cursing, and rejoicing in evil. Very much like demons. Son Ok Lee wrote a book entitled "Let Me Be Your Voice," and in this book, he, she speaks about her six years in a North Korean labor camp. She describes how utter despair and confusion reached for her like a black claw from behind, inescapable. But her recollections of those six years are most shocking. When she speaks of the sheer brutality of the officers. Now, this is truly vexatious and exasperating to read. Given power and given opportunity, what human beings are capable of doing to each other is beyond belief. And they do this with relish. You see, this is what you must Digest doing it with relish and with delight in torture. This is shocking to read. And in the absence of God, we become beasts. Of course, this is no flattery to animals, to be sure, because they are not as bad as we can be. But we know what we mean. We become beasts, and no wonder. Holes don't stay empty. Holes don't stay empty for long. They get filled with something. We have a hole in our heart. It's a spiritual hole. It wants to be filled. And in the absence of God, the hole is filled with things of a different kind. Jesus told the parable of the house that has been swept and scoured of an impure, unclean spirit. And so it roams through desert places, and then it says to itself, I'm going to return to that house. So he does. He returns to the vacant house and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus, when he spoke these words, was vis-a-vis, face-to-face with people, who were full of religion, but not with the Holy Spirit. Well, that makes you wonder, doesn't it? What am I being filled with? How do I fill myself? What do I have in that receptacle, in that hole? What is filling my heart? And yet, here's a second Example from this psalm, what is it like, this absence of God? It's not only foes, the enemies of David who become like animals. Notice what David says of himself, I am a worm. I'm a worm and not a man. He feels like being reduced to something subhuman, an insect, a worm. And you know what this is that he describes here? You all know. You all know what it's like. It's that crushing sense of defeat. And it has a name. Its name is shame. Shame. Adam and Eve had a first taste of it when they suddenly realized that they were naked and they had a feeling that they couldn't track. They had a feeling that they had never experienced before. As we read, and they were ashamed. They were filled with shame. You know, shame Shame is one of the powerful tools that the devil uses. Even parents use shame to control their children, causing so much damage to them. People use shame. Governments use shame to control and to manipulate behavior. And David's enemies pour shame on him. They use shame to consummate and to complete David's experience of bottomless shame, adding insult to injury, as we say so fittingly. He scorned, despised, and mocked. But there is one kind of shame that you never want to know. It's the shame that God rightfully lays on sinners in judgment. That's the one shame that you have no remedy for. Oh, People saying, you know, time heals all wounds, so if you are ashamed, you get over it. If you make a fool of yourself, give it a few years, you'll laugh at the incident. You get over it. When God lays shame, rightfully lays shame on a sinner, there is no escape. Shame lay on Jesus as the life of his soul was crushed out of him. When he was under our guilt and our shame, suffering for our sins, Jesus came to take our shame. Nakedness. And only he can. He took our shame to hell. He wrestled it down. And hell. Hell is the total absence of God. Absence in the positive, absolute sense. Inhabiting a space and time where every experience, even taking a breath, is a nightmare of nightmares. And this is the third and final angle on living in the absence of God that David describes here, broaches. It is a process of deconstruction, of uncreation, of falling apart in body and soul, the whole world falling apart. David says, you lay me in the dust of death. And this is the summary of a flurry of images of both physical and spiritual decay in verses 14 and 15. Imagine living, living only to experience dying alone and isolated in a never-ending cycle. The absence of God, the fountain of life. When God disciplines you, it may feel like living in the absence of God. Anytime you find yourself reduced, not well, anytime you find yourself in trial or in difficulty, it's easy to conclude that God has forsaken you. What if he doesn't show up? What if he has turned his face against you? Because we then fail to see or we do not understand the process by which God works in our lives. He isn't working for my comfort and ease. He isn't working for yours, I can assure you. This is not his first and foremost objective, your comfort and ease. If that was the case, you wouldn't be here, I assure you of this also. He is not working for our comfort and ease. He works on our growth so that we may be holy. You may be tempted to doubt or question his faithfulness when you feel that way. And I guess you know what I mean. But while you do this, or even think that he is absent... He's really fulfilling his redemptive purpose in you. It's medicine, bitter medicine. After all, we always tend to think that other people need change more so than I do. Yeah, well, it's not like only some people need to change. It's not only that other people need to change. I need to change. You need to change. Change, in fact, is the norm in the presence of God. Who never stops working to accomplish his will in us, namely your sanctification, my sanctification. And when God goes to work, he will also use discipline, changes the norm. But this means that you're not alone. This means that this is not the end. This means that this is only one step. And a step that isn't wasted. It's a step in the right direction. Faith will teach us you this. It's like Oscar Wilde said, Oscar Wilde, surely not a Christian, but of all people, he said, in the end, all things will be well. And if they aren't, it's not the end, not yet. And so, we move on to the turning point of the ordeal that David finds himself in. Verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, this statement is like a hinge. The psalm hinges. It it turns on this hinge. You have rescued me. And to understand To see the surge of confidence, you need to see it in context. David arrives at this turning point only, and I say this with purpose, only after a series of deep theological reflections and questions and answers in the first half of the psalm. So this first half is marked by a throbbing alternation of me sections and you sections. In the former, in the me sections, David speaks of his experience. Hence, we call these me sections. He's telling you, this is what happens to me. If anyone cares to listen, this is what happens to me. There are three me sections of increasing length. Verses 1 and 2 with the initial cry and the theme of the psalm. Then verses 6 through 8 and finally the longest of them, 12 through 18. The u sections, on the other hand, are reflections on God, his nature, and his history with his people. And they have increasing urgency. The three U sections of this Psalm are three through five, three, nine through eleven, another three, and then nineteen through twenty one, another three. So me and U sections alternate. The U sections are as follows. The first U section is three through five, and it recalls how the fathers They used to call on God and they trusted God and they were not put to shame. David has the record of those stories. He knows those stories very well and he knows that the fathers cried to God and he listened. They were not put to shame. They went through a lot of hardship. That every reason to doubt God, but God always came through. And how could it be any other way? God had given the fathers the promise to be their God. So he was. The second you section builds on the first in a logical way. Because now David applies the experience of the fathers that he has from the scriptures that he possessed to his own experience in life. This is verses 9 through 11. And it shows David reflecting on his own past experience with God that he's been present. From the day that David was born, God was his God. He knows it. He knew it and he still knows it. David had trusted in God like the fathers and he found God to be faithful in the past. So he can say, so far, everything lines up with what God has told me in the word. There is nothing out of order. Everything is just as it was and ever has been. And then the third U section, 19 through 21, is the most intense. And it ends with this word, you have rescued me. You see now, all has been building up to this moment, to this plateau that David finally reaches after a series of theological reflections, biblical theological reflections, and then personal theological reflections where he applies the biblical testimony to his own life. And he sees that then everything does line up. All has been building up to this moment. If God rescued the fathers and if God has been faithful to me, then how can he now abandon me to Sheol? Impossible. I will not accept this. He has rescued me. He heard me when I cried to him. And when God hears, rescue is already underway. So David is helpless, living in the absence of God, but he has one thing that others do not have. He has a God-centered Identity. David consciously places himself in the story of the fathers who trusted God, and then he transfers this to his own life in which God never let him down. So that he is living in the absence of God, but with the unchanging identity of a child of God. Or each of us lives out of some identity. If you forget your gospel identity in Christ, you will replace it with something else. That hole wants to be filled too. If who you are in Christ doesn't shape your thinking of yourself and the circumstances that you face, you live out of another identity. All that remains is to Find out what that identity rests on or what it is. And David does the right thing. This is the path to follow, brothers and sisters. He does the right thing. It's almost like a reflex, but it is also deliberate. He's running a search. And then he aligns his thoughts and feelings with what he found to be true. You know, we often go over past decisions that we made. And we wonder, did I make the right decision? Yet at the time when you made the decision, you knew that this is, the, this is the thing I need to do. This is the right decision. And when you go over these decisions and you reminisce and you begin to doubt, you fail to see that if you really did the right thing for the right reason then it will stand. What you did and said back then still stands today. You don't need to worry what people make of it or what they think of it. What was right back then is still right today. And in a sense, that's what you see David doing. As Peter says, in Christ we've been given everything we need. Everything means everything we need for life and godliness he means therefore that you cannot you cannot properly live there's only one way to live you cannot properly live in the present unless you know you're okay in Christ and that God has made provision for you whether you're hungry whether you're thirsty whether you're afraid you ought to know that God has made provision for you already so be hungry, so thirst, so be afraid. Remember, God has made provision already. What is His provision? His provision is Christ Himself. He has given us Himself, so we have what we need in any situation. It's like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live. I'm finished. But Christ lives in me. And Christ living in me has to have some experiential nuance. Nobody can tell me that Christ lives in you and you have no experience of it. As a matter of fact, if you want to know what it's like to have this experience, read Psalm 22. Because David is not only a prophet speaking through the Spirit of Christ. David also, by the Spirit of Christ, places himself in God by faith. And without it, without doing what David does here, you have only one choice. You live anxiously. You can admit this or you can bury it. You can ignore it, but you will live anxiously, anxiously avoiding hard things, avoiding difficult things, being easily overwhelmed, being easily discouraged, afraid. A clear sense of identity and divine provision gives you hope to face the struggles that are coming, trials that are coming. And this sense of belonging you know, this isn't something that we only have since Jesus Christ. It was ours from the beginning. The sense of provision that God provides for us, it was there from the beginning. We are made in God's image. What do you think this means? And now you know why people place their identity in their jobs or in their performances or in a negative sense that plenty of people Define their identity from a traumatic experience that holds them. That's what fills the hole. That is, you know, divorce, depression, sickness, pain. They allow themselves to be governed by these things. They've lost their identity rooted in God as their father. But now you can have it back. You can have it restored in Christ. Well, that brings me to my last point, the theologic, theo-logic. The second half of Psalm 22, as you can see, is a rapidly expanding circle of praise and vision and praise and vision, ending in the simple words. He has done it. Reminding me of Jesus' words from the cross, it is finished. He has done it. This is what I mean by theologic. God has done it. All. All. Everything. Not a thing missing. God has done it all. He has been in everything. That's the theologic of Psalm 22. He has done it. It embraces all the psalm's features. Every verse, every word, every letter. So, he has done it includes the experience of God's absence. So, paradoxically, God was present in his absence. He has done it includes David's rescue. He has done it, includes the ingathering of the nations to worship at God's footstool. The shape of the psalm demands it. It's all one chain of events tied together by the Lord doing it all. And so, verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth will remember. Remember what? Hmm? Remember where the story begins. With the salvation of the king who lived in the absence of God. That's the beginning of Psalm 22. That's the beginning of the trail. That's what they remember. And it's worth while remembering, because he has told us about it. Notice how it says here, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. That's verse 22. Verse 22 is cited in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, as Christ's testimony to you, to me, to us, to everyone who is in Christ. This is Jesus speaking today. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. Has he told you that now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ? He is our peace. Absence and distance have been overcome. The God who forsook Jesus raised him from the dead. And so God also crucified your despair that you can never come to God again. Now hope is rising. I can say the same thing. You can say the same thing. We can say the same thing together. He has done it. Basta. He has done it. Say it. I need to hear you say it. You need to hear me say it. I need to hear you say it. For just as we think that our despair is so unique to us, nobody knows how I feel. Well, okay, we can give this to you. So nobody knows how you feel. Are you happy now? Because your experience is not that uncommon. Read Psalm 22. Jesus knows what it's like. He knows how you feel. We think that our despair and our pain is so unique to us, nobody knows what I feel like. And we also think that we're alone. I'm alone in my doubt and in my fears and my struggle to believe. But then to hear the testimony of a brother and sister, as we heard today as the, the woods gave their testimony before the session is so refreshing and so encouraging. As we said earlier today, if you sit in the dark waiting for the sun to rise, it's not your eyes that catch the first ray of the sun. It's your ears hearing birds singing. That's how you know that the sun will rise. Birds know. You ought to know. I ought to know. We know. So follow Jesus' example. Encourage one another. With his theologic, he has done it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. You have done it. And I will say no more. I rejoice in you. I praise you with my brothers and sisters. Amen.